Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. We're in the season of Advent and uh, Christmas time. And I don't know what your house is like, you know, when you decorate, who puts up the lights and all that kind of thing. But um, in my house, we listen to a lot of Christmas music. I mean, like a lot, like all the time. And I think we break all the rules as to when we start it. And I never get tired of Christmas music. I love it. But there are two songs that when they come on, I just turn into Scrooge. And I I say bah humbug and I'll ask for the playlist to be forwarded. I mean, I'm just so tired of these two songs. The first one is Last Christmas. Last Christmas, I gave you my heart and the very next day, And the second song that just, I'm so, I'm so tired of hearing it, is Mary Did You Know. Yeah, some of you want me to be thrown out of the building. You're like, that's my favorite, the pastor. I'm just tired of it. So I'm glad we got that out of the way. I feel better. Well, in today's message from Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah chapter 11 actually is a Christmas hymn. It's a Christmas song that we will never get tired of singing. It's a prophecy about the birth of Jesus. And Isaiah the prophet has come into his time of ministry in this incredible vacuum of leadership. King Uzziah, who was a very, very good king, had just died. And in chapter 10, right before this, the Assyrians have just destroyed the nation of Israel, destroyed the land. Israel has literally become and figuratively become a stump, barren wasteland. Just bare stumps as far as the eye can see. No branches waving in the wind, no birds flitting around, no movement, no sound, just smoldering stumps from the Assyrian devastation. So the nation of Israel is struggling, struggling to have hope, There's devastation all around them. And so Isaiah is writing to them this Christmas song about this coming peace. So if you're willing and able, why don't you stand? Let's read Isaiah chapter 11, the first nine verses. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch From his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. 
the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with his breath, his lips shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be his belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and a calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and the little child will lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand into the adder's den. And they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the reading of God's word. Every bit of it is true and he gives it to us because he wants us to experience Shalom. You may be seated. My parents raised me on musicals. Seven brides for seven brothers. I wanted to do all the dancing and the singing myself. But my favorite, or one of my favorites, is Les Miserables. Les Miserables is now the longest running musical. It has now been seen by 65 million people. The woman, Fantine, in Les Miserables has lost everything. She has become homeless. She's had to cut her hair just for food. She's forced to give up her daughter, and now she lies sick and dying, and she sings that incredible song, I Dreamed a Dream. There was a time when men were kind, when their voices were soft and their words were inviting. There was a time when love was blind and the world was a song and the song was exciting. There was a time then it all went wrong. But there are dreams that cannot be and there are storms we cannot weather. I had a dream my life would be so different than this hell I'm living. Life has killed the dream I dreamed. Watch Fantine sing these final lines. Life 
has killed the dream. I dream. All of us know the song, I've Dreamed a Dream. And we've sung it over the stumps of our lives. Where there used to be flourishing trees of dreams that are now cut down and all that remains is a stump. You know, it's gonna be a hard Christmas for many because of the pandemic. There's gonna be people missing at family gatherings. And we all know that during Christmas, all the, the culmination of human misery can show up. Restlessness, guilt, shame, broken relationships, futility, war, evil. And all those things are always telling us this is not how it's supposed to be. We long for fullness. We long for the dreams that we have dreamed. We're longing for shalom. And Isaiah writes this Christmas song and tells us of a shoot that will come out of the stump of Jesse, the king who will bring peace. So take your sermon outline and let's look at this passage together. This king will come and he will rule with judgment. So in the midst of this devastation, Isaiah writes that there will be a shoot that comes from the line of Jesse, the line of David, and he will be like no other king. Wisdom and power and authority and counsel and might, and that he will use his royal power to bring judgment that this king of peace will be so powerful that he will bring down the wicked with the breath of his mouth. With his words, he will speak against death and evil and sorrow, the death of children and unjust rulers, the Holocaust. He will bring justice. He will destroy the wicked. Now, in our secular culture, people say all the time, well, I think God should just be loving and I cannot believe in a God who would bring judgment and who would punish people. Well, if there is no judgment day, then we are left with only two options. First, we lose all hope because it means all the evil and oppression that has been dominant throughout history will never be addressed. And it also means for you and I personally that in the day-to-day -day life, it absolutely makes no difference whether you live a life of kindness and selflessness or you live a life of meanness and cruelty. It makes no difference how you live if there's no judgment day. And second, if there's no judgment day, it means that you will have to take justice into your own hands which is exactly what we are experiencing in our world today. The cancel culture, 
the anger, the rage, the revenge, the over the top tribalism, completely dismissing people once you figure out what political side they're on. Researchers are calling our current state the mean world syndrome where disagreements are no longer just holding a different point of view, but they are a declaration of war. And everything that we are experiencing in our culture right now is because we have taken God off of the throne. We have dismissed him, not just from the public square, but we've dismissed him from every square inch. The people of Isaiah's day were crying out for justice. They were longing for justice. You know, this year we remembered the 20th anniversary of 9-11. We were grieving over it, remembering it. And in the very week, the very moment that we were doing that, the war on terror was coming to an end in Afghanistan. Troops were being pulled out. And what was the result of that? Not victory, not peace, just more bloodshed. (laughs) Just more desperate people. And many of us felt like saying, how long, oh Lord? How long? Well, the Bible does not merely say that evil is punished, as important as that is. Because actually, in our world, sometimes evildoers are brought to justice. We can punish evil, but we can't undo it. We cannot bring back the dead. We cannot repair ruined lives of families. But this king, he's going to undo evil. Fedor Dostoevsky, the Russian writer, he suffered and saw lots of evil in 19th century Russia. He was arrested for discussing banned books with a group of others. He was arrested and sentenced to death and moments before he was to face the firing squad, it was stayed. Instead, he was sentenced to four years of prison in Siberia Then he had to serve six years of compulsory military service. And after that, he was released only to beg for food on the street. He had every right to be angry. He had every right to be politically enraged, to want to take justice into his own hands over the evil that was done to him. And this is what he wrote. I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the absurdity of human contradiction will vanish like a pitiful mirage. In the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, of the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood they've shed, And it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify what had happened. I mean, that would have been his post on social media in politically divided times. What was yours? 
You see, he is looking at his situation. He is saying, this is wrong. This is injustice. This is evil. But then he is pulling the truth of the future shalom and the king of shalom into his present reality, into his present injustice and evil he is experiencing in real time. You know, I, I think he understood Isaiah chapter 11. Will we? Second, this king comes to reconcile with his righteousness. In verse four, it says he is going to judge the poor with righteousness. He will judge the needy, the poor, the meek, and he will judge them not by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness. And then it speaks about his righteousness as clothing, that he is clothed in this righteousness. So Jesus, the king of peace, will judge not by what he sees or hears, which means that he will not judge by what he hears people boasting about, about he, he sees people's performance. Okay, what does this mean? Well, this is the gospel in Isaiah, that he is going to judge, he is going to make right for the poor and the needy, not by what he sees, but by his grace by his grace, that we cannot merit God's favor with good behavior, behavior and producing a life of worth that everybody can see for boasting. That this king will clothe you, that you cannot clothe yourself. But the problem is, we don't believe this. So we make our life and our faith about producing a life of worth to ease the agony of the poverty that we feel within. And this is the curse since the fall. You know, we hid from God in the garden and we're still hiding. We're still trying to find a fig leaf big enough to clothe ourselves, to cover ourselves with meaning and worth. And I wanna tell you, whether you're aware of it or not, this is the most exhausting thing about being a human the quest to validate yourself, to justify yourself, to clothe yourself with worth. This is what T.S. Eliot says. He says, half of the harm that is done in the world is due to people who want to feel important. They are absorbed in the endless struggle to think well of themselves. The endless struggle to think well of themselves. When I was, a, when I was in high school and in college, um, I, I loved to play sports, but I, I wanted to be like Mike. I wanted to be like Michael Jordan. I mean, he is the greatest basketball player that ever played. I watched everything. I imitated all the moves. I mean, I wanted to be like Mike. ESPN uh, did a, uh, an interview with Michael Jordan about 10 years ago over Jordan's obsession with his best days of his basketball career. Jordan said that his self-worth has always been tied directly to the game and that without it, he feels adrift. He doesn't know who he is. That since his third retirement, he's been running, moving as fast as he can, creating distractions, filling his schedule. 
that he feels this competitiveness kick in and he has no outlet for it. And it makes him anxious. And so he gambles money on everything he does. You cannot play Michael Jordan in the card game, go fish, unless you put money on it. It has to be a competition. And Michael Jordan said this, he said, it consumes me so much. He says, how am I gonna find peace away from the game of basketball, away from always having to compete? Listen, you don't have to wish to be like Mike. You are like Mike. We are all tied to the game of trying to feel important and have worth. Plumbing, fixing a leak. If my wife says the shower's leaking, it just causes immediate anxiety in my life. <laughs> I like to think of myself as uh, a bit of a Mr. Fix-It, right? But a couple years ago, our shower was leaking and I spent like two days, several hours trying to stop the leak. And I got so frustrated with my failure and my inability to fix it that I came into the kitchen and I screamed at the top of my lungs, I am a worthless piece of crap. That's actually not what I said, but this is a family show. Now, I mean, I'm frustrated, right? But what does, ha what does not being able to fix the shower have to do with my self-worth? Is, really, is my worth really tied to what I do? Our worth is in fact tied to what we do or what we've done. That's the fall of mankind. And you have to listen to discover your inner need. You have to listen to that poverty. You have to listen to those eruptions of frustration and anxiety at people and, and blowing your top because that is an indication of your truest poverty and your need for peace. I love what Henry Nouwen says because this resonates so much with me. He says, the real trap, however, is self-rejection. As soon as someone accuses me or criticizes me, as soon as I am rejected, left alone or abandoned, I find myself thinking, all right, well, that proves it once again, I'm a nobody. My dark side says I'm no good. I deserve to be pushed aside, forgotten, rejected, abandoned. Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us beloved. Being the beloved constitutes the core truth of our existence. See, the gospel means that you can be at peace and break being tied to the game because God does not obsess over your goodness. He's not really impressed by it. 
He has provided his righteousness. He clothes you in his righteousness. And so the struggle for worth is over in the song of the gospel. You see, religion tells you, you better prove yourself to be a good human. You better earn it. Secular culture tells you that you better create a life that others will admire. Jesus says, my life for your life. You are covered, you are clothed. All selfishness, all religious arrogance, all guilt, all division, all boasting, all racism, all looking down on others, materialism, all fear is driven by the inner poverty to cover ourselves with worth and meaning. We are tied to the game. And the problem with you and MJ and AJ is that we cannot clothe ourselves. We cannot clothe ourselves with worth and meaning. And so we are tied to the game either because we don't have the gospel or we don't know how to press the gospel deeply enough to change our Monday morning. Last Sunday was my birthday and it's not too late for you to get me something. (laughs) So it's my birthday and um, after church out in the Narthex, good bunch of you guys were already gone, but there's still a good crowd here. I was around some guys I know, and, and one of the guys said, hey, it's your, it's your birthday, right? Today, today's your actual birthday. And I said, yeah. And so then some guys kind of, as a joke, started singing to me. And um, pretty soon, it went from five people to 10 people, and then wave after wave of people began to add in and jump in. And started, it was like 70 people singing, now circled around me, singing to me. And, you know, I'm smiling. I'm kind of going along with the, the time. And then. But then something happened to me. I started getting choked up. I started, you know, getting emotional. I was, getting, I was experiencing being loved by other people. I was, being, I was being celebrated. And it was becoming real to me. Now, you don't know me real well, but I don't like to be loved like that. I don't like to be celebrated in a way that corners me because I don't like that feeling of being out of control. I don't, I don't like being that vulnerable. So, you know, when it happens, I'll pivot. I'll, I'll, I'll remaneuver. I'll re- shift the focus. I'll do all kinds of, of dances to get the attention off. It's not healthy. I probably need counseling. <laughs> but last Sunday, I was caught. And I was experiencing people's affection. The gospel sings over you. It clothes you with the gospel delight. You know, Christmas is God coming to get you. It's him pursuing you. To give you his affection. For you to experience his delight. 
but you're not going to get caught if you don't know your need. You won't hear the music. You know, you can read the Bible. You can go to church. You can sing, Jesus loves me. But that doesn't mean that you've actually experienced God's affection for you. Have you? You know what, let's just do something crazy. We're not gonna sing Mary Did You Know. But seriously, uh, bow your head right now. I'm gonna pray. Okay, you're gonna pray. You're gonna use these words. Jesus, I know the gospel, but I'm not sure I'm hearing the music of your affection for me. Jesus, would you help me to experience your delight over me. In real time, amen. Wouldn't that be something this Christmas? All right, third, third, the reign of Shalom. Isaiah gives this, uh, this mind-blowing picture of the new world this king will bring. The Shalom, the wolf will dwell with the lamb. Uh, the calf and the lion, the cow and the bear. And it's a staggering picture of the end of all hostility. When he says that the lion will eat straw like the ox, what it's saying is that there will be no more bloodshed, that all creation will be healed from evil and suffering and war and cancer. And, and God is, through Isaiah, having the Israelites pull this shalom into their present reality. But what we have now in our world is suffering and cancer and divorce and heartache and devastation. When I was in high school, I was introduced to some literature, uh, one man in particular named Edgar Allan Poe. And I wasn't too crazy about him because it, it, it made me have nightmares. <laughs> But one, one poem that he wrote was particularly powerful, and you know it, it's The Raven. It's about loss of love and sorrow. Here's the famous beginning. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volumes of forgotten lore, and while I nodded nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as someone gently rapping, rapping, at my chamber door. What's rapping? It's a raven tapping on his door. And at the end of each refrain of loss, the raven says to him, nevermore, nevermore. And with frightening pithiness, it conveys the irreversibility of life. That once our youth, our childhood, our loved ones are gone, there's no going back. That irreversibility is a kind of death in the midst of life. We cannot go back, we can't relive the best times of our lives, we cannot fix the sad times of our lives. And the raven is haunting, is mocking at each refrain in your story. 
nevermore. Nevermore. I was mowing the yard, so plumbing, now mowing. <laughs> I was mowing the yard a week after I had taken um, my son to college. And I, as I'm mowing, I am just overcome with sadness. And tears just start coming down my face. And I didn't know why I was crying. And then it hit me. My kids were grown. Their childhood was over. My youth was gone. So no more flag football games. No more shooting hoops in the driveway. No more us all having dinner together around the table and everybody's home all the time. No more prom dates. No more packing school lunches. No more teaching them how to drive. Actually, that was a nightmare. But their childhood was gone. It was irreversible. You know, we can look at the stumps of our lives and groan nevermore in the hospital by the tombstone over the state of our adult children. We can hear that raven mocking us. You'll never have another chance. Nevermore, nevermore. So how does this king bring shalom? How does he bring the reign of shalom? Verse eight it says, a child plays over the hole of a cobra. A child sticks his hand into the viper's den. And the serpent will not bite the child. A child could sit on the coil of a rattlesnake and not be harmed. A child and a serpent. Where have we heard that before? Genesis 3.15. God is speaking to the serpent, the evil one. He says, I will put enmity hostility between you and the woman, your offspring and her offspring. And he shall crush your head and you shall bite him on his heel. This is a prophecy of Jesus on the cross that everything evil would bite him on the heel. It would be a fatal bite that everything that's wrong, everything that the raven is, is mocking us about, every sin, every failure, all that is broken, all the cancer, all that is wrong in the world, evil, the fullness of it would bite him. Yet, Jesus, by his death and his resurrection, the king of peace will crush the head of the serpent. And he will bring an end to nevermore. He will silence the raven in the now and the not yet. I love what Tim Keller says here. He says, the secular view sees no future good of any kind. This life is it. Other religions believe in an eternity or a heaven as a consolation for the losses and the pains in this life and all the joys that might have been. But Christianity offers not merely a consolation, but a restoration, not just the life we had, but the life we always wanted, but never achieved. I dreamed and dreamed that my life would be so different than this hell I'm living. So what was the dream that you dreamed?
What is your stump? Where does the raven mock you? Let me show you a picture. This is Dean Smith and I last Easter. Dean's in the back. Dean and I are long friends. He's better looking than I am. But one time I asked Dean, I said, Dean, do you ever lose the desire to get out of that chair and walk and run? He said, no. And, to my, and I'm thinking to myself, come on, Dean. I mean, that chair owns you. I mean, it oppresses you. I mean, you've always been in that chair. I mean, that's your stump reality. And Dean said, no. Because he sees the shoot from the line of Jesse coming up out of the stump. Dream, uh, Dean, never, Dean never loses the dream of walking and running. And neither do you. No matter how deep it is buried in you. And you, because you know it's not the way it's supposed to be. Don't you? You know, Christmas is no little thing. I hope you hear its song. And I hope you never get tired of singing it. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains repeat the sounding joy, he comes to make his blessing known far as the curse is found far as the curse is found. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org. 